It's the Carson McKellar Center's weekly Weave Me. This week's episode is the first in a series based on an interview we conducted with McCullough scholar Carlos Dews on June 19th of 2020. Professor Dews edited Carson McCullough's unfinished autobiography, Illumination and Night Glare, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 1999, and edited the Library of America's two-volume Complete Works of Carson McCullough's 2001 and 2017. He was the founding director of the Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians at Columbus State University in McCullers' hometown of Columbus, Georgia, and the founding president of the Carson McCullers Society, an organization of scholars dedicated to research on McCullers' life and work. He is currently under contract with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt to edit the selected letters of Carson McCullers. Dues is professor of English at John Cabot University in Rome, Italy, where he also directs the Institute for Creative Writing and Literary Translation. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Um, so this is a strange and frightening time, you know, we're living in in a lot of ways. And um, I don't know what's going on in Italy uh, as far as Black Lives Matter, but I know from speaking to people in Ireland, for instance, uh, and in Britain, that um, there have been, you know, uh, marches and protests um, in those places and, and kind of all over the world. Um, what are some ways uh, that it draws us back to Carson McCullers, would you say? Well, I think um, one of the things that people recognize from the very beginning of McCullers' career, and you probably know that Richard Wright wrote a very early review of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, in which right, he praised yeah. Carson McCullers, um, is that she had this uh, uncanny ability to empathize with uh, people of color that is sort of at odds with uh, her background and and uh, where she's from. Uh, it's sort of unexpected that this middle-class uh, young woman from uh, Columbus would be an, as apparently enlightened as she was about race and and as sensitive as she was, as Richard Wright pointed out in his, uh, his review of the book. Um, and, you know, uh, Sarah Schulman wrote a piece in The New Yorker uh, a few years ago called White Writer, yeah. uh, in which that she tries to tease out and try to understand where that empathy uh, may have come from, what the origin it was. And she sees it as McCullers having been self-identified as different from a very early age. And because of that, she had this great sympathy or empathy for anyone who was ostracized or treated badly because of their difference. And she says that McCullers is a model writer that we should turn to. She was writing um, uh, about three years ago um, when there were some other uh, uh, examples of uh, uh, police violence. And she was saying that McCullers is someone that white writers could turn to to study to see just how a writer can deal with race in as sensitive a way as uh, as possible, and and try to create African American characters in uh, her fiction as adeptly as she was able to do. So I think McCullers is someone we could turn to as a model of a of a white writer who did the best she could in trying to empathize with uh, uh, with African Americans in particular. 
Well, yeah, but, you know, in fact, I wanted to ask you a question about that. I have read that piece uh, in The New Yorker, and I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if you saw Zadie Smith's uh, piece that was published in uh, the New York Review of Books uh, sometime in the last year to 18 months, probably, where she deals with this issue of uh, cultural appropriation. And, you know, there are a lot of people now, uh, it's an ongoing debate, that says that basically white writers should not be um, depicting African-American characters or people unlike yourself. And Zadie Smith basically comes out and says, you know, that's ridiculous. That's that's not possible. And, I, you know, it's, it was interesting in the uh, in the Sarah Shulman piece because she admitted that some of her friends of color uh, called her out and said, you know, what what right do you have to be writing about people of color? Uh, and, and, it, and it made her second guess herself. And I, I don't think she ever quite comes out and says it in The New Yorker, as I recall. Um, you know, uh, she, she doesn't make some bold statement about that, about what she believes uh, the person uh, should do. But I think your, your, your point is well taken. She says Carson McCullers is maybe a model for how it can be done. I mean, is mm-hmm. that is that basically how you read it? I mean, you're yeah. a fiction writer too, and so how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, if you don't mind, I have uh, her piece in front of me, and I can read a really brief uh, quote yeah, from sure. Schulman's piece. She says, um, but what of the white writer who wishes to be artistically engaged, but who simultaneously does not want to recreate cultural dominance in her work? Are there complex, nuanced representations by other white people which we might turn toward? I suggest the one answer may lie in the unlikely legacy of a pale, sickly writer from the mid-20th century who smoked and drank herself to death by the age of 50 and whose own personal turmoil and self-destruction may be at the root of the enormous insights about difference found throughout her work. Hmm. Um, And in fact, this piece by Sarah Shulman was written at the time there was a controversy regarding a speech that Lionel Shriver had given uh, sort of bristling at the fact that people were saying that uh, white writers shouldn't represent black uh, characters in their work. Yeah, right. I remember that. Um, Well, how do you think, um, this is interesting, we had Hilton Alls uh, uh, here in 2017 as well, and and, you know, Mm. in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Yeah. And and so uh, this is a question I had for you. How do you think uh, a lot of people in today's literary environment would look at uh, the work of Carson McCullers in this regard, in, in terms of how she depicts African Americans, for instance, or other people who are unlike herself? Well, I just finished teaching uh, this term, a seminar that I have the privilege of getting to do uh, once every couple of years here at my university, uh, a seminar de- devoted to McCullers' work, and we read all of the novels. And uh, so I get this opportunity to reread The Heart of the Lonely Hunter uh, every couple of years. and. The thing that strikes me almost every time I read it is not necessarily how forward-thinking she was, but how it holds up still today. Yeah, I tried yeah, as I tried as best I could to find a point that I could enter and be critical for her representations of African American people in particular, and mm-hmm. I simply couldn't find it. Now, mm-hmm. in Sarah Schulman's piece, Sarah Schulman talks about one of her own novels that someone criticized her because um, there was this thing that it was clear that it was a sort of white perspective she had put into the brain of a black character in one of her uh, uh. of her novels. And I sort of tried to look at McCullough's representation of Dr. Copeland or even Portia uh, yeah. in the novel, uh, Dr. Copeland's daughter. And there's very little place 
where I see it. Now, as a white man, it's difficult for me to see you right. know, something that seems inappropriate inside uh, a sort of black consciousness in the novel. But it's also amazing to me how little criticism has ever been directed toward McCullers for getting it wrong in that uh, yeah. novel. I yeah. think there are very few uh, places. I would love to hear uh, from black critics uh, examples of where they see her having gotten it wrong. It would be really well, interesting to hear. Well, there's one that you probably recall. It's uh, in in uh, the Hardest Only Hunter. She um, uh, talks about the the, the way that the uh, black neighborhood smells different, and this is one of the things that Hilton Alls points out. Um, so that, that's that's one of the places I remember. You know, rereading Hardest Only Hunter for the umpteenth time, and that that is, by the way, that's my favorite. That's the one that okay. that I that I hold up. Um, but um, and it, you know it 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 does give me pause there to think about that, and I, I think there are ways that you can rationalize it and to say that you know it's not that there's not difference; it's that there's there's sensitivity to difference and there's lack of sensitivity, mm-hmm. and so that that's the way I rationalize yeah. it. But I I'm uh, that passage uh, uh, re- remind me if I'm mis- misremembering it, but that is. Uh, the character of Mick going into a black neighborhood right, and saying right, that, right? Right. Well, in yeah. some ways, she's embedding perhaps sort of uh, a bit of sort of racial bias into Mick so that, you know, she might be imagining a black person entering that neighborhood. That might be something yeah. they observe. It might right. not be the case, but it, but she's essentially recreating right. a bit of racism within that white character. And I right. think, in fact, that may be a very realistic uh, way for her to represent it. Yeah, uh, yeah. She yeah. had she had had uh, uh, something inside the consciousness of a black character that that jangles or that isn't exactly right. I would uh, maybe find more fault with her represent, but her representing a white character having a stereotypically yeah. sort of racist response to something. I think that's consistent with the reality. Right. Yeah. Well, there's something else uh, as well. Fascinating. Um, well, the Richard Wright review that you mentioned, you know, the famous quote that has yeah. followed uh, Carson around all his years is about, he, he says, she's the first Southern writer, white Southern writer, to deal with her, uh, I think he uses the word Negro characters, with the same sort of sympathy that she shows to her white yeah. characters. Can I read that passage? I have yeah, it in front yeah, of me. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he writes, and this is toward the conclusion of, uh, of his review, he says, to me, the most impressive aspect of The Heart as a Lonely Hunter is the astonishing humanity that enables a white writer for the first time in Southern fiction to handle Negro characters with as much ease and justice as those of her own race. This cannot be accounted for by, for stylistically or politically. It seems to stem from an attitude toward life, which enables Miss McCullers to rise above the pressures of her environment and embrace white and black humanity in one sweep of apprehension and tenderness. Yeah. Well, it's great. Well, and the astonishing thing, of course, uh, is that, uh, as he would have been well aware, uh, uh, Carson is writing in the wake of William Faulkner. Yeah. And I've, I've thought a lot about that myself. Um, and I have my own sort of um, interpretation of that. But uh, I wonder if you, uh, you know, have, have feelings about that, uh, uh, how Carson compares to Faulkner in terms of her um, uh, dealing with African-American characters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, 
I think we all, any any Southerner uh, post Faulkner, sort of has to reconcile oneself yeah. to uh, uh, to Faulkner in in some way. Sort of like Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence, right. Faulkner yeah. sort of hovers over everyone, uh, and you have to reconcile yourself uh, to him. And I think Carson wasn't immune to that, especially they were living at the same time. In fact, yeah. um, and you know, knowing McCullough's work as well as I do, and knowing. Faulkner's work fairly well, certainly not as well as I know McCullers, but you know I know uh, Faulkner's work somewhat. Um, there is a when I read Faulkner's representations of African American characters, there's always something um, as if he's demonstrating them for you to look at. It's like he's putting mm -hmm. them there for you to to almost like um, uh, exhibition on exhibition. Mm -hmm. McCullough's African-American characters, you really feel you're sort of experiencing something from within them outward. It's not like she's putting them in front of you. Here, look at this African-American character in my fiction. Mm -hmm. It's some, much more organic the way that she deals with African-American characters. And actually, if you will let me quote uh, Richard Wright, because he mm -hmm. says something about McCullough's and uh, uh, Faulkner in his review. Mm -hmm. He says, her quality of despair is unique and individual it seems to be more natural and authentic than that of Faulkner. Mm, wow. How um, and, you know, this is Richard Wright reading her very first uh, uh, yeah. novel, and he's already sort of recognized uh, that in her. And I yeah. agree with that uh, completely. There's an authenticity to the way she represents, but it's not just African-American characters. The way she represents all of these people in her novels who are struggling she represents with an authenticity because I think it comes from her experience of that uh, yeah. personally. Yeah. Well, uh, that's interesting. Of course, I, I'm sure you know. Yeah. Well, she had a complicated relationship with the play, so it doesn't surprise me that the play has a complicated relationship with her. It's true enough. Um, it's true enough. Yeah. You know, regarding regarding race, it was one thing I wanted uh, to add to what I said before is mm -hmm. in Illumination and Night Glare, the unfinished uh, autobiography. Um, in a number of places, she writes about seeing firsthand, uh, especially the, the young black women who work for, for the family, uh, the domestic uh, uh, help that they had there at home, the, the humiliation that she saw them facing uh, right. in town. In particular, she remembers um, uh, one of the young women who worked for them calling a taxi to take her home at the end of, right. of a long day. And the taxi driver, because he was called into a, a white middle class uh, neighborhood, uh, when a black woman approaches his taxi, uh, when he arrives at the at the curbside, he curses her and drives away. Right. And Carson talks about how her and her brother saw that and they were so humiliated for her that they uh, crawled under the house and hid under the house uh, until, mm -hmm. they, uh, until they felt better because they were so embarrassed uh, to, to look at her um, because they realized someone of their race had degraded her because of her race uh, yeah. so so badly. And that such a young age for a Southern child of her class and her time to be that sensitive uh, to racial injustice, I think it's really, really telling. Yeah, she absolutely. These week's readings are from The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, chapters 7 and 13. Note, these passages are in the consciousness of John Singer and Jake Blunt, respectively, not as Nick and Professor Dews had remembered them, in the consciousness of Mick. Singer walked through the scattered, odorous parts of town where the Negroes crowded together. There was more gaiety and violence here. 
Often the fine, sharp smell of gin lingered in the alleys. Warm, sleepy firelight colored the windows. Meetings were held in the churches almost every night. Comfortable little houses set off in plots of brown grass. Singer walked in these parts also. Here the children were huskier and more friendly to strangers. He roamed through the neighborhoods of the rich. There were houses very grand and old with white columns and intricate fences of wrought iron. He walked past the big brick houses where automobiles honked in driveways and where the plumes of smoke rolled lavishly from chimneys. And out to the very edges of the roads that led from the town to general stores where farmers came on Saturday nights and sat around the stove. He wandered often about the four main business blocks that were brightly lighted and then through the black, deserted alleys behind. There was no part of the town that Singer did not know. He watched the yellow squares of light reflect from a thousand windows. The winter nights were beautiful. The sky was a cold azure and the stars were very bright. Jake tiptoed heavily behind Singer down the bare, narrow hall. At the threshold of the kitchen, he stopped short. The room was crowded and hot. A fire burned in the small wood stove, and the windows were closed tight. Smoke mingled with a certain Negro smell. The glow from the stove was the only light in the room. The dark voices he had heard back in the hall were silent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's Weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCuller Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCuller's 100th birthday on February 19, 2017. I'm Ryan Worley, Technical Director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Additional music for this episode includes George Gershwin's An American in Paris and Maurice Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe. Both were recorded by the Schwab Philharmonic in Legacy Hall under the direction of Professor Paul Hustetter. Mm-hmm.